This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 194, Shakespeare. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. William Shakespeare is generally conceded to be the greatest and most popular writer in the history of the English language. His influence covers the gamut of the human experience, including, as of this week, this podcast. Today we will discuss the impact Shakespeare's had on our culture, second only to the Bible, the controversy over the canon, both in the folio and the Bible, the language used by the bard and his king with its pros and cons, and the mystery woman who has scholars baffled and me completely lost the game table. We'll start with what I've been preaching. To be or not to be, that is the question. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. To thine own self be true. I could go on and on. The words of Shakespeare have permeated the English language for more than 400 years now, and will no doubt continue to do so long after I'm gone. These phrases took root for three important reasons. One, many, if not most, of the English-speaking world was extremely familiar with the work of Shakespeare, at least on a casual level. Two, the words themselves were crafted in such a way as to make them memorable. Three, they addressed universal truths of the human experience. Triumphs and defeats, strengths and frailties, heroes and villains, love lost and love found. Things that we experienced 400 years after Shakespeare's day, just as much as his contemporaries did. But consider this list, if you would. At my wit's end. The haves and the have-nots. Bite the dust. The blind leading the blind. Casting pearls before swine. Old as the hills, the apple of my eye, escaping by the skin of my teeth, feet of clay. These expressions, and dozens more like them, that are equally well-known and frequently repeated, come from the King James Bible. And they're remembered for the same reason as the others. Our forefathers knew the Bible well. It was read in most homes, taught in many schools, and referenced by civil authorities regularly, religiously, if I may say so. The crafting of these phrases carries the same elegance as the Shakespeare quotes. It's perhaps not as poetic, lyrically speaking, but the nature and power of the content more than make up for it. And they, even more than the Shakespeare quotes, address what it really means to be a human being, regardless of your century. I think this is one of those good news, bad news situations. Obviously, there is a blessing in living in a society that is saturated by the Bible. Plenty of societies over the centuries have been the opposite, and they suffered the consequences. Being touched by Jesus, even if it's just the hem of the garment, and there's another phrase we've adopted from the Bible, it can't help but be a good thing. Everyone knows about the golden rule. There's another one. If we even give lip service to the idea of doing unto others like we would have them do to us, that can't help but do a little bit of good. Here's the problem, though. If we're not careful... We can convince ourselves that a smattering of the Bible attaches us to God enough so that we can live the life we actually want to live and not worry about consequences. It's like sprinkling chia seeds on a glazed donut or drinking a Diet Coke with a Snickers bar. Plenty of people know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous. And it's not because they've studied the Bible or even picked one up. It's because they have been exposed to snippets from the Bible through our culture. This is why people can talk about how we should judge not and have never in their lives actually read Matthew 7, verse 1, let alone the surrounding context. No wonder they misunderstand the verse, and a hundred others like it. They cite the law about an eye for an eye whenever they want to take personal revenge. 
and completely ignore how, one, they just judged someone when they were telling us just a minute ago that they were supposed to judge not. And two, Matthew 5.39 quotes Jesus himself as saying that is precisely not the way we're supposed to read the text from Leviticus. But typically, people who make these sorts of arguments just let the counterarguments slide off their back and go on their merry and sinful way. They don't want enough Bible knowledge to know God's will for their lives. They just want enough Bible to have something to say to Christians who are trying to tell them what God's will for their lives actually is. Being able to say, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, after picking five losers in a row at the track does not make me a Shakespeare expert. It does not qualify me to comment on the broader picture of his plays, or Richard III in particular. It just means I remember a line from somewhere, and I was able to co-opt it for my own purposes in the moment. And the same way, simply asserting that it is better to give than receive does not make me a Jesus expert. If you truly value the contributions Shakespeare has brought, read Shakespeare. And if you truly value the contributions Jesus has brought, read the Bible. This is what I've been reading. Interred with Their Bones by Jennifer Lee Carroll derives its title from a line from Mark Antony in Julius Caesar. He says of Caesar, his mentor, The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. In the context of the play, it means Antony is prepared to accept the condemnation that has been placed on Caesar and let the good he did be forgotten. At least that's what he says he's prepared to accept. He quickly turns the tables on Brutus as the speech progresses, but that's another discussion. In Carroll's book, it has reference to a play that may or may not have been written by Shakespeare and that may or may not have survived unpublished for 400 years. The book's protagonist is much more interested in the historical implications of such a play than any financial reward that might come with it. Others are on the same trail. Their motives are much less noble, and they will stop at nothing to get what they want. It's an interesting read. If you know The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, it's kind of like that, except not nearly as blasphemous. The subject of canon is almost as central to the Shakespeare story as it is to the Bible story. Canon, spelled C-A-N-O-N, not with a double N like the big gun, refers to what does and does not belong in a collection of work. With Shakespeare, it refers to what he should actually get credit for writing. And with the Bible, it refers to which works of antiquity should be considered as actually inspired by God. A total of 36 plays appeared in the first folio, a collection of Shakespeare's work assembled shortly after his death. Two or three other plays are generally accepted as authentic as well. And a couple of plays are referenced by other sources but have not survived, or else never existed in the first place. One of those is entitled Cardenio, and it is rumored to have been based on the Don Quixote story. That is the play at the center of Carroll's novel. And there are a handful of plays that Shakespeare is rumored to have been part of, but the so-called experts generally agree that his involvement was either marginal or imaginary. Interred with their bones deals with canonicity in a very simple and definitive way. A letter is discovered from Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's friend and collaborator who specifically cited which plays deserved a Shakespeare credit and which ones did not. No one would know better than Johnson, so his word on the subject is authoritative. The story of how the Bible canon came to be is a long and interesting one, in my mind at least. It's no surprise that a creative community such as the early church would have a lot to say about their experiences and about their Lord himself. Much of this was put down in writing, some by apostles and prophets, some by other well-meaning Christians, and some by those who wanted to assume the apostles' role. 
This had become a problem less than 40 years into the life of the church. Peter and John especially addressed the problem in their epistles. Their position was clear. Apostolic authority was the rule. Not because the apostles were better or smarter than anyone else, but because they had been given that authority by Jesus himself. 2 Peter 1 verses 16 through 21 sums it up perhaps better than any other text. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Eyewitness testimony makes all the difference. Having someone like Peter there to authenticate the words and principles of Jesus is fundamentally different from having some opinionated person put forth his own opinion on what God would like. That is why the apostles insisted on an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry when they replaced Judas in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, including particularly being an eyewitness of his resurrection. From the earliest days, lines of fellowship were drawn between those who did and did not respect apostolic authority. They remain drawn today. It is sometimes said that church fathers gathered at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and determined that the 27 books we now have in our New Testaments were scripture and all others were not. That is not exactly true. A better way of saying it would be that they came to an agreement on what books had been received by the early church. They did not decide on what was truth. Truth was once for all revealed to the apostles and handed down to us, according to John 16.13 and Jude 3. The early fathers, guided no doubt by providence, knew which writings were apostolic, and they acted accordingly. The canon is closed. We need to make sure it stays closed. This is what I've been hearing. Elizabethan English just sounds different in the ear than modern English. It's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely a thing. It's especially true when you watch a Shakespeare play being performed. As you likely already know, Shakespeare generally wrote in a poetry style called iambic pentameter. It refers to sets of five feet, which are basically bundles of syllables, each of which contains two. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. That's the classic example that was taught to me in high school and college. Two lines, ten syllables each, forming a smooth, rolling rhythm. The Bible, of course, was not written precisely like that. And if it had been, it would hardly be significant to most of us, since we don't read it in the original languages. Reading biblical poetry in English today sounds more like Walt Whitman than Alfred Lord Tennyson. And that's regardless of the translation you're reading. But even without the poetic phrasings, Elizabethan language has an undeniable ability to grab our attention and impress us, especially when read well. I'm not the best at reading scripture, mostly because I talk too fast, as you've likely figured out by now. But let me give Psalm 42 a try. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, 
for the living God? When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan, and of the Hermonites, from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God my rock, Why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. The refrain from KJV Advocates is pretty much the same. That just sounds like the Bible to me. And I'm a big fan of King James, make no mistake. But there's no doubt 400 years of linguistic evolution has left King James behind considerably. And by the way, the King James Version you almost certainly know, the one from which I just read, is from 1730, not 1611. If you think your King James Bible is archaic, imagine trying to read from the earlier version. This one passage, just 11 verses, illustrates many of the struggles we face when we read primarily or exclusively from the King James. Words like disquieted are seldom used, and no one calls dear hearts anymore. Saying thirsteth instead of thirsts may make you feel more connected to God, which is great, but it will certainly have the opposite effect on someone who doesn't read the Bible regularly. And then there's the these and thous. Many have convinced themselves that it's irreverent to address God any other way. But as Psalm 42 clearly shows, that's just how people talked back then, whether talking to God or to one another. Don't get me wrong. I'm fine if you want to read, teach, or preach using the King James Version, but do it for the right reason, because it's a solid version based on reliable scholarship and conservative in its approach to God's message. But don't do it because it sounds more like the Bible. The Bible was specifically intended to be accessible, not uppity. The Koinea Greek style that characterizes the New Testament was the language of shopping lists and personal letters, not government edicts and other important messages. God wanted to give us his word in such a way as to make it understandable to everyone. And when you think about it, why would he give it to us any other way? I would suggest to you that the biggest difference in our reading of the Bible is not the version that we choose, but rather the level of reverence we take toward the text in general. I promise you, the Bible will sound impressive and authoritative in any version, so long as you, the reader and listener, remember that it is the literal word of God. Hearing the word come down from heaven instead of down from the pulpit, that's what makes for a powerful reading of scripture, not these and thous. 
this is what I've been playing. But how, someone is out there saying, you haven't mentioned Shakespeare's sonnets. His sonnets are some of his best work. Well, let's talk about the sonnets. A sonnet is seven pairs of rhyming lines, with the last pair essentially presenting an answer to a question, a resolution to a problem. For instance, the famous Sonnet 18, the one with the line about the summer's day to which I referred before. It goes on for the better part of the first 12 lines, discussing how summer's glory fades, and that the hottest of its days can actually be objectionable. The object of the poet's affection, on the other hand, remains glorious at all times. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Her image before his eyes, or even lingering in his memory, will cause her and her beauty to live forever. And this gives rise to the discussion of the mysterious lady that appears over and over again throughout the sonnets, the Dark Lady. Conventional wisdom holds that this woman, described as having wiry black hair and dun-colored skin, was simply a construct, a figment of a poet's fertile imagination. But of course, that isn't good enough for the romantics who have flooded to Shakespeare's work over the last 400 years. Some believe she was a real person. In fact, multiple theories have evolved regarding which historical character she might be and why she seems to have been unattainable to the bard. As it turns out, the conventional story isn't good enough for gamers either, which brings me to Black Sonata a strictly solo play game that puts you in the position of someone chasing this mystery woman around London, trying to identify her. A very clever system of cards allows the woman to move across the map undetected, while the game player gathers clues. If you're ready to make a guess, a hole is provided in the card that will reveal a special symbol in the case of an accurate guess, nothing otherwise. I say it's a very clever system of cards, and I say a special symbol is revealed. In fact, I absolutely cannot get this game to work. I do exactly as the rules require. I narrow the search down to a single possibility. I make the guess, and I'm wrong. Again. I would love to blame the game or the rules, but the game has been in print for five years and remains very popular among solo gamers, so I'm forced to a different, more humbling conclusion. It's my fault. Again. Frankly, I'm not much of a solo gamer. I like playing a game on the computer while I watch a movie with the family, sure. But actually getting a game set up on the table, concentrating on making good decisions, reaching the desired goal on my own, I'm surprisingly not into that. Just about the only games I like playing solo are the ones I play with Tracy and the girls that don't make it to the table often enough. That is to say, games I already know. That is to say, games Tracy explained to me. And to quote Shakespeare one last time, I, there's the rub. I'm awful at reading real books. I've grown entirely dependent on Tracy for that. She reads real books very well. That's her role. I do online research to find games, set them up, and pack them up, and make excuses for why I lose. That's my role. In all seriousness, though, it would be awful to think that the object of my affection, the only thing that could bring true joy and satisfaction, was wandering around the streets of Georgetown, Texas, waiting to be discovered, and I was utterly incapable of finding it. Now, I'll be honest with you. There is a wide strip of quit that runs through me. It's why I'll likely never pick up Black Sonata again. I hate that feeling of ineptitude. I'd rather just find something else to chase after. The importance of finding the answer to a 400-year-old mystery is debatable. Quitting a quest that almost certainly will never be completed might be a good thing. Trying to find Jesus, though, Trying to lay your hands on life eternal, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 6.12, that's another story. 
It may be frustrating. You may come close to losing hope from time to time. But thankfully, you do not have to play this game solo. You have help. Most importantly, of course, you have the help of the Spirit-infused Word of God that will equip you for every good work, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But also, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the fight with you, who need you as much as you need them. By joining forces and edifying one another, as 1 Corinthians 14, 26 teaches, we can stick it out through challenging times, through setbacks and defeats, and put ourselves back on the lighted path that leads to glory. I am privileged to count myself as one of those brothers, and to count you, faithful listener, as one as well. Help me help you. With God's help, and with the love and support of one another, we can find what we want the most, a home with God in heaven. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.